You're listening to Future Theater Radio with Bill and Nancy Burns right here on the Dark Matter Radio Network and PSN Radio. Uh, Hi, everybody. It is, what is today? August 17th, Monday, 2015, and we are your co-hosts, Bill, that's me, and Nancy. Hello, everybody. Burns, and we are broadcasting on Future Theatre Live from the banks of Primrose Creek in beautiful downtown Solbury Village on the Dark Matter Digital Network and PSN Radio, and our producer is the wonderful Jackal, Angel Espino. Say hello, Jackal. Hello, Jackal. Hello, Angel Espino. And Bill, tell the audience why you sound a little muffled tonight. What'd you do? I sound a little muffled because Nancy's USB headpiece was um, broke again. It just broke Abducted? again. Oh. Abducted by aliens, and uh, which Nick Redfern, who's our guest tonight, can talk about um, in great detail. And so she's using mine. So instead of um, my using my iPad and Skype, I'm on a landline. See, I was kind of hoping you would give a little bit more of a mysterious answer and kind of go into the character and be like, yeah, I'm in the woods, right? And we're approaching Area 51, and I'm calling from a cell phone. Wouldn't that be cool? And I'm so actually cool. on the road right now. This is UFO Hunters 2.0, man. Bill Burns is back. You know what? Doing it. You know what? I was we are, hoping something we like are going to put the team back together, I can tell you. We've been doing some elementary discussions setting it up. It's going to happen. And you, Angel Espino, you will be part of the team. You. I've always wanted to be part of the team. Yeah. See that? I think everybody we've talked to uh, wants to come back and do it, pretty much. They they will make the time. So we're starting to talk about it. It's a lot of fun. I will do anything. You need me to run interference with, like, people that you're going to go and interrogate. I'll do that. You need somebody waterboarded. I will do Uh that for you, Bill. (laughs) Which reminds me, I bet you haven't seen Revolution yet, probably, right? I have not, and shame on me. Okay, but... Yes, you really I do, you yeah, have I, to I, see you this know, movie. We're enjoying it. It's a, a two, two, uh, two seasons from the guy who created Lost, and basically they're an hour at a time, so we kind of treat ourselves every chance we get and watch another episode. They're, you know, it's, it's kind of... I can see why it failed, but I still like the idea, but... Right, I, right. Yeah, I can I see wanted, why it failed, too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just kind of, after a while, how many torture scenes can you see? How many, it's hmm. the same old, same old, it's the same. I haven't reached my limit yet, but. Oh, yeah, yeah, they're so horrible. But I wanted to bring out, uh, there's a little uh, news piece I saw in today's news that I thought you, Angel, would be interested in. Um, because you're a game, you can, you know about games, and you're also a little a PC. bit, right, right, uh-huh. right, right. It says here, Microsoft is allowing itself to detect pirated games on your Windows 10 PC. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, that's the headline. What do you think of that? Does that make you crazy? No, it's actually a very logical step for operating systems to do stuff like that, uh, to curb pirating, because, you know, pirating hurts the artist and it hurts Yeah, but the you know, Windows, Windows, with, and, and also their, their Windows But it is just wrong for Windows to spy into my stuff. Exactly. That's right. That's exactly right. You buy Windows. That's infuriating. I get why you want to stop pirating. Okay, but the idea that you put an operating system on your machine that then spies on you. 
that's just is wrong. infuriating. But here's another thing that I don't understand entirely, so I wanted to toss it out with you, Angel, while you can explain it to the folks. Windows 10, as I understand, is going to itself update itself when the time comes. This right? is the thing I really don't like about Windows 10. It yeah. forces your computer to upgrade to Windows 10. Like if you have Windows 8.1 or whatever, or you realize, Windows 7, don't you, that you're becoming forces- Mac? That's exactly what is wrong with Mac. And I really don't like that because, first of all, you, you say you have Windows 7, the, the premium or, like, the most incredibly awesome one, right, like the, the full edition. Uh, it makes you – it forces you to upgrade to a basic Windows 10. So you're, you're literally like, hey, you're getting a Windows yeah. 10, but you're downgrading. You're getting, like, the worst of it. How long as a radio guy can you stay on Windows 7? Um, what do you think the lifespan is of your perfect setup, which I know you worked hard to get? Love the and, setup, yes. Yeah, because of Sam's Broadcaster, you're on Windows 7. So right, how long right. will this bliss last for you? Oh, it'll it last forever because I just won't upgrade. Eh. Oh, you have a choice. They don't upgrade you automatically. No, 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 they don't. You, you're, you're kind of forced to because they put banners on your computer and they're like, you know, hey, upgrade now, click here. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, they keep like encouraging you to upgrade. But it's not one of those things where they shut your computer off and say, hey, if you don't upgrade, jerk, mm-hmm. you're not going to use your computer. Yeah, yeah it's forcible. That's well, not going to happen. It's exactly like uh, getting chipped. Eventually, everybody will get chipped right. eventually, even even our generation, because it'll be something like you wave your arm in front of the, uh, you know, the, the place, and you go into right. the supermarket, and you get 10% off every time you walk in because you've con- – Hey, chip me now. Con- formed. Exactly. <laughs> and you're going to feel like an idiot not to be chipped, that sort of thing. That's but, right. Um, ha- now, do you remember seeing the movie The Day the Earth Stood Still, the old oh. – yeah, that one and the Keanu Reeves. I've seen them both. The which? Oh, the Keanu Reeves. Okay, so yeah. the old one. Uh, how long ago do you remember seeing it vaguely? Well, the last time I saw it was like eight years ago. Yeah. Well, did you notice how different... Maybe seven. Well, we saw it last night. It just happened to be on TCM, and we were kind of flipping through the dial. And once you start watching that, you can't turn away. It's really oh, yeah. well-directed. It's, yep. it's beautiful, yeah. Even but, for an old movie, it's like an incredibly oh, yeah. well-done movie. And it it's is. 1951, so it mm-hmm. scared the bejesus out of a whole generation of people, you know, if the bejesus, yeah. man. But but the thing that, um, so we were saying, oh, now that we've, uh, our little grandson was here and granddaughter for the la- last week. Yeah. Say what? <laughs> My condolences. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. It was great. Um, I, I quit Bella Haven in, in um, just I in heard. Time. I know. I totally quit it. I just said, screw this. I can't do both. I can, <laughs> totally can't do both. And then after they left... Um, I was I was playing the show for Bill, and I said, you know what, this isn't half bad. And then I unquit through BillGap.com. But uh, the very the very good Lou Sheehan is helping me, and your friend Chris Brown is helping me. Mr. Brown, yes. Mm-hmm. So they both not, come on. Just sorry, buddy, not the guy who beat up Priyana. Another Chris. Yes, Brown. exactly. Continue. Exactly. Yes. And you know, Chris has a uh, so many things relate to Chris Brown's orb story. Be, you'd be surprised. And so, basically, um, these two guys are helping me. You know, it's almost more like you know, I can't get back out that door. I can't. I can't exit again. They're sort of blocking the exit door. You know, that's their big job. So anyway, so we're we're. But my little grandson um, found we have uh, we have Amazon Prime. We have Netflix. We have. We don't speaking have. Of, speaking of auto updating, you know, Amazon Prime just auto billed me a hundred bucks on my card. I didn't even know they were billing me. Why? Yes. Yeah. $100? I don't like that. They have a. They have a good time billing. 
Well, yeah, you know, and here's the thing: I had canceled my like after it expired the last time. I purposely canceled it. Hundred dollars. Built me a hundred bucks for the year. It used to be sixty or seventy. No, hundred for it's a year. So worth it. I love it so much. I just love it because of all the movies and stuff you get, and now they're they are giving you the option. I sound like such a prisoner. You're, you're, you're talking to the per, you're talking to the person who has Plex, Nancy. Plex. I know, I know. <laughs> but see, um, in the case of all this, my little grandson's eyes were like boggled. It's like so many movies. So we let him. I hope his mother's not listening. We let him, uh, wa- you know, stay up and watch movies. Um, wow. Period. I did the, um, let's see, I, did, I wasn't doing the show. Um, anyway, so he stayed up and watched movies. And uh, I got to see an, uh, a potential fan. He loves the plots of these movies. He loves how they're building. So we saw the X-Men, I think, the ones nice. where all the heroes um, have to go. Uh, they're all, the, again, they're hard to distinguish. The Is it the one movies. they go back in, in the past? Yeah, they yeah. go back in time, right. Yeah, it, that's Days of Futures Past. Yeah, yeah. Yes. that was really cool. That was a really good one. Yeah. There's actually an alternate edition called the Rogue Cut where they oh. added some scenes to it, and uh, the character oh. Rogue, who got cut out of the, the, the ah, actual cut, cool. is added back into the movies a little bit longer. It's really, really good. It's much better than the other version. Oh, wow. Version. We'll have to see that. Yeah. But And I can't I can't, uh, you know, recommend Lucy enough. You will love it. I love it because it's a female who, I mean, uh, Scarlett Johansson was. She's super- awesome. She oh, really she is. is great. In this. She was great. And of course, in um, the X Men movie is yep. the wonderful Lawrence Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah, Jennifer Lawrence. She was good. No, but too. She, yeah, and you know Scarlett Johansson also plays a main character in the Marvel Universe. That's she plays Black Widow in the Avengers. Uh-huh. And because of the movie Lucy, it proved that she could carry a film by herself. Because what? of that movie, she's going to get her own spin-off Black Widow film in the near uh, oh, next so years. Oh, so Black Widow is something I have to say. Oh, Black Widow's awesome. If you've never read the comics, you know, it no. all has to do with the Avengers and, you know, Captain America and, the, you know, that group. Uh, but Black Widow's an amazing character. She doesn't have superpowers, but she's just an incredible BA. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This, wow. This girl just, she could really kick butt. Cool. And yeah. uh, it's one of the best Marvel female characters that there is. Well, I and have she to was say great that... in the Avengers. She was great in the two Avengers movies, and now she's going to get her own spinoff because of Lucy. So. Well, what's the one? There's a new one with another, uh, you know, um, Morton Downey Jr. Oh, that's Iron Man. Uh, so isn't there a new one that he's in? He's one of the people? Yeah, well, that's coming out uh, next year. It's called uh, Civil War. It's Iron Man versus Captain America. The Civil wow. War, which Good actually that they're drawing right from the comic books because that's, that's an actual epic storyline, the Civil War, uh, that has to do with uh, the people on Earth, the human beings that have no superpowers, like Iron Man, uh, saying that wait a second, these you know these superpowered beings, you know there might be a problem, and mm-hmm. there's a big war that breaks out, and that actually happened in the comics that involved Spider-Man, the Fantastic Four, Captain America, Iron Man, Hulk, a bunch of all of these. Great it's exactly what all. we're talking about tonight with yeah. Nick Redfern. You wait and see. Here's why. Oh, I love it. Here's, here's why. When my when when the kids were here and Bill. Everybody had one of my machines in their hands, either my iPads or my phones. Or the, I had nothing to do. One little kid was um, playing with my computer and stuff. So I picked up the book that my grandson had brought, and it was it's called Divergent, and it's a, like a young it's a young adult ah. novel. You know, Divergent yep. the movie. Yep, yep. It's boy, it was really good reading it though because I haven't read a book in a while. The book is better than the movie. Yeah, sadly. I, it might very well be because yeah. it has more humanity. The um, same thing with uh, the uh, arrow, the girls with the arrow catching the fire. The arrow. Yeah, the arrow, the bow and arrow catching. girl. 
Jennifer um, Lawrence. Oh Jennifer. yeah, yeah. Can I, oh, Hunger Games. Hunger Games, yeah. I See, here, here's movies. the interesting oh. thing. Here, here's the thing that I can't get over, and that's what we're going to talk to Nick Redfern about tonight. Right now, there's a meme that wasn't there when we were growing up, and that, and it all started, I think, uh, with Indigo Children. That's kind of and a guy named Brad Steiger who wrote a book called Star Children a long, long, long time ago, and it had he had a list of a few. Are you a star child? And tonight we're going to talk about the Rh factor in one's blood. And Nick Redfern's book, which I have right here, is called Bloodline of the Gods. Okay, and we're going to talk about this divergency. In other words, is there something in some of us that make us reptilians or are some of us potentially divergent beings that could take our race into another place? You see, but that's the theme that's in all these movies. You know, like you're different. Everybody's mean to you because you're different. And it's like the, um, you know, the swan, the ugly duckling. Right. You grow up and you grow up into your powers. What do you think of that, that angel? You're already in your 30s, right? Mm-hmm. Sadly enough, yes, yes. Yeah, and so your superpowers have not come out yet, or have they? Mm, well, Superman would never reveal himself, Nancy. Neither uh-huh. would I. Okay, I like that. I like that. That's very humble. Okay, we we move on. Like and of course, that. I compared myself to Superman. You know, I know, I like the that. strongest of all the superheroes. But and you showed that you are part of the uh, you're part of the uh, Brotherhood. You know what the secrets are. Correct. Fight Fight Club. I keep the, the I keep us the secrets. Yeah. I keep it. Yeah. So that's cool. So okay. So now here's the thing. Just before the show, uh, Bill sent me an email um, from Rick Lertzman, and longtime listeners of the show know Rick Lertzman. He's one of the great great talkers as well as great great writers with bill and the mickey rooney book is coming out and we just got a bad review from kirkus kirkus is a place that in our burns household we've never gotten a good review from kirkus but this bad review really makes you want to read the book it talks all about the sleaze the book is full of sleaze (laughs) i'm fine i like it already so let's ask bill what he thinks of this do you want to talk about it or not Uh, i I, (laughs) A Kirkus always amazes me. It's as if they don't read the book. They just, they focus on one thing. First of all, it, what was so infuriating about the review is they called the book superficial. We go scuzzy. into... Scuzzy. The very first word they use is scuzzy. I never, you never see scuzzy in a review. Right. Um, <laughs> scuzzy is like, you know, that's like a 1950s term. I know. And, and that's Kirkus. <sighs> it's stuck in the 1950s. First of all, first of all, Here's a book that goes into the psychology of this person, the neural networking of this person, describing what a feral, how a feral child um, grows up backstage and what happened to that person. And it talks about a whole bunch of things. I even bring in well, Pottinger's cats. But, but when consider, does it get superficial? Yeah, consider this. Here's the first criticism. The book fails to illuminate Rooney the man or the incandescent talent that made him a teenage icon. Now, the thing is, there are your talking points for the rest of the book tour. Right. You're going to just rub their noses in it because, of course, it illuminates Rooney the man or the incandescent talent. Um, that was your task. Right, exactly, and, 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 and it's astounding. And the fact is, they didn't even get the structure, the structure of the book. Yeah. It's a Greek tragedy. That's why there's all the reviews and all the comments from Ava Gardner and Frank Sinatra and, and all of Mickey's friends are in the book. They're like a Greek chorus, 
as Mickey, who is like doomed from the start genetically, staggers through life doomed and why? succeeds. Well, because he's doomed because he has his, both of his parents are alcoholics. Both of his parents split like billiard balls on the day he's born. He, he's raised backstage, so he is the poster boy for epigenetics. Um, he becomes an alcoholic. And he by epigenetics, a, you mean nurture? I mean that all the genes for predisposition to alcohol, predisposition to gambling, predisposition to drugs, to womanizing, to, to basically being a complete and utter narcissistic sociopath, all those genes are turned on. Yet, despite all of that, Mickey Rooney manages to have a career in right. which he's inventing one thing after another. Mickey McGuire is the first live action series based on a licensed character set of cartoons. This is before Walt Disney. This is before Mickey Mouse. So, so Well, this so, is before the X-Men. Right, this is before the X-Men. This is uh -huh. before all the comics that Way Angel before. was talking about. Yep. Mickey actually stars in this. And who Mickey is, is Professor X. That's what it is. Right. And who <laughs> yeah. is the big producer, the big guy behind everything? <clears throat> it's Joe Kennedy, Joe Kennedy Sr. So Mickey helps make Joe Kennedy richer than Kennedy already but, is. But wait, how did, how did he make him rich? Er. Because Joe Kennedy, er, right. <laughs> Joe Kennedy was looking to get into motion pictures. He was desperate, so he, ah. so he invests in the old RKO, the silent movie studio. Then along comes this guy, Larry Darmore, who is a real wannabe. He, he, the, uh, Larry Darmore is a real gearhead when it comes to cameras. He knows how to use them. He invents, he helps invent the, the wartime newsreel from World War I. He's attached to General Pershing's staff. He gets out of the army. He's looking for a gig. His that wife is so is, critical. I mean, really, that, that invention is so critical to our right. culture. So, yeah. he, so he hooks up um, in L.A., um, and he decides what he wants to do is because the Our Gang comedies are so important. That's the Hal Roach comedies back in the early 20s that he says, I've got to make my own. So he approaches Joe Kennedy to finance him to license the character set for Tunaville Trolleys, which was a cartoon by Fontaine Fox that started in the early 1900s. So here's this guy, Fontaine Fox, who is a cartoonist who's looking to turn his cartoon into a motion picture, a series of motion pictures. Darmore wants to do it, gets the money from Kennedy to do it. And remember, Kennedy was working with David Sarnoff. This is the very beginning of sound. And but wait, wasn't guy, Sarnoff, where was Sarnoff on the Tesla Edison spectrum? He was the guy who worked with Marconi opposite Tesla in developing a radio, early radio. Okay. That's what, um, and he eventually founded, he eventually founded NBC. Mm -hmm. NBC is part of Universal. That's part of Comcast. And it's all owned by General Electric, which was founded by Thomas Edison. Jesus. <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay. Wow. Well, so, so into yeah. this mix, Nell. Talking to Bill is always so relaxing. Uh, <laughs> oh, Nell brings Mickey Rooney, who is in burlesque. He was a stage comedian in burlesque at one and a half years old. 
doing all kinds of bits and imitations and playing the drum and singing Palo My Cradle Days while the audience went crazy and ad-libbing. So she brings Mickey in, they dye his hair black, and now he's Mickey McGuire. And for the next 10 years, this guy is earning money as a child actor. So it's Mickey McGuire, the young Robert Blake, the young Jackie Cooper, these, all these people working together. And, and that's how his career starts. And then uh, he gets into um, early sound movies like Orchids and Ermines, Manhattan Melodrama. And this career then goes on to last for 90 years. But it does because Mickey Rooney is zelig. He is the complete chameleon. Since he never developed a personality, he never actually matured. He's still that child. Even at 93 years old, he's still that child. But he could acclimate himself to any role. So for Mickey Rooney, it was never acting. That was the real Mickey right. Rooney. In fact, the secret of Mickey Rooney is there was no Mickey Rooney. Well, if there you was believe... the guy who inhabited every role. Right. And the fact that Kirkus missed this yeah, is so that's what, that's what I'm gonna Wait, that's what I'm going to ask. If you believe the critics have to find something wrong or fall on their face, in this case they didn't fall on their face, um, how could you have made that clearer, do you think? If Could you have? Did you, in fact, or is Kirkus right? I always, when, when, when I'm criticized, I always like to figure out, is the person right? You know? Uh, because right. many times they are, in my case. <laughs> No well, no, <laughs> uh, uh, they're right insofar they're wrong about the superficiality. That's infuriating. But they're right about the fact that <laughs> Mickey Rooney's life was one scandal after another. Eight wives. He was a pedophile. Um, yeah, wow. He was, he was, when he was in his second marriage to Barbara it, Ann Thompson, he was getting oral sex from a 14-year-old Elizabeth Taylor. In the dressing room as his wife walked in. And it's the same Elizabeth Taylor who, when she was 15, was having an affair with Ronald Reagan when he was married to Jane Wyman. And when she was 16, she was having an affair with Jack Kennedy and Robert Stack at the same time in Robert Stack's swimming pool. Hold on. And and they made a big deal about Bill Clinton and some chubby interns? That's right. That's astounding. It's crazy. I mean, really. it's it's just amazing. So they went crazy on that, and yet you've got these former presidents having sex, Pedophiles. literally sexual yeah. intercourse with teenage girls. Yeah, but how does an artist, and this is like a broader question, and this does, has nothing to do with Nick, but Nick probably runs into this too because he's published many a book. How does an artist try to get their work out there and play politics at the same time? I mean, Mickey Rooney fell afoul of politics constantly, right? He failed right. at everything eventually. He, he, he never had any money, even though he could have, right? Well, that's the whole point. But that's not even politics. He, he, he never, he, no. Mickey Rooney had no concept of money except not to have it. I mean, everybody in Mickey Rooney's life, everybody from, from, from uh, uh, the investment banker Charles Allen to his various stepfathers, finally to Donald Trump himself was giving Mickey advice on on how to hold on to money. Mm-hmm. In fact, when Mickey would make these investments, he'd call up Donald Trump. Donald Trump would say, Mickey, it's, it's a lousy investment. It's mm-hmm. stupid. You're going to lose all your money. He made the investment anyway and lost all his money. Mm-hmm. When wow. they were trying to raise money for uh, this play, um, 
I want to say it is the Will Rogers Follies or the Will Rogers Gaieties. Donald Trump was investing in it because Marla Maples, his his wife, uh, at I the remember time, that. I remember right? that. Okay. So he and wants that was her to, debut. Right. Yes, it was. So he yeah. wants to raise money for this thing. So he's going to use Mickey, and he takes Mickey to this golf course with quote unquote the rich guys. Right. Mm-hmm. Mickey was an avid golfer. And so Donald Trump figures, I'll take him to this golf course. He'll woo these guys. They'll be so impressed with Mickey Rooney's star power that they'll invest in in the musical. Mm -hmm. Well, the guys are talking while Mickey is teeing off. Mickey is is so obnoxious to this guy. He's saying, I can't take this. You guys shut. And he's cursing out these guys. And Donald Trump finally has to say to the guys, look, Mickey, uh, uh, this is Mickey. Take Mickey as he is. So, but Donald Trump stayed friends with Mickey for his entire life. I mean, and he tried to help the guy out. He tried to give him advice. Mickey wouldn't take the advice, not in the least bit. So that, I mean, that's, that's the story. The, um, this is probably, Kirkus always comes out first with its, with the reviews. They seem to be the first out of the gate and they're never, almost never, the way that all the rest of the reviews are. Oh, did tell. they hate the squad? Well, they were nasty to you in cleaning house. I mean, they weren't. I, they weren't that bad, but they were pretty bad. But then the next bad. review, the next review, oh, Publishers Weekly was a dream. Yeah, it was a dream, and and Publishers Weekly at the time, Kirkus was always this kind of dusty academic type yeah, of thing. They're so negative. They're negative about everything. I mean, they yeah. hate, They hated the squad so much. And they also hated Day After Roswell. They hated Dr. Feelgood. They hated the squad so much. What did they like? Oh, no, no, it was PW that liked the squad. Kirkus hated the squad. Mm-hmm. They hated it so much that Mike Milan, the author, who was a wise guy, <laughs> wanted to go down and, and kick their butts. I like that. I like that in an author. That's right. That's right. dedication. That's dedication. That's right. (laughs) So, Angel, uh, let's see here. Uh, Do we have any business? Because we have only less than a few minutes left. Five minutes. A few minutes before uh, Nick. Do we have any? I always, up until the time that Art Bell came back to the radio, we had so many little bits and pieces of blit. We were trying to create, everybody that's on Dark Matter was trying to help and try to bring in listeners. And now, of course, I don't think it's necessary. I think it's now it's a matter of, hello, listeners, you came Tell your friends. Um, is there any Loved business? That, yeah. So <laughs> on, Wednesday, on Wednesday, you have who is coming on Skywatchers? Ooh, well, we're going to have the return of Mr. Christopher Gortano. And mm. he's the director of the film, The Montauk Chronicles. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. Highly recommended. I finally saw the whole thing. He was uh-huh. on the show a couple of weeks back. I had not seen the movie yet, but we interviewed him, talked about the movie and stuff. And it was great. Great interview. Well, does but he make the, the case film. in your mind at all? Does he what? Does he make a case in your mind for anything to be true in that whole the, story? The movie is very well put together. Uh, you know, the, the the presentation and the directing of, that he did was really well done. Uh, it's very creepy, you know, and uh, the interviews mm-hmm. seem very authentic. I mean, these guys seem like they're, you know, on the on the money for the most part. Now, here's the thing, though. We've been fooled before. Absolutely. So you have to take yeah. it with a grain, of, a grain of salt, but the directing is excellent. Uh, the, the packaging of the movie, the way everything is presented is very well put together. 
Oh, that reminds me. That reminds me. Um, Art Bell had Andy Bashago on. Uh, ah, Bashago. Bashago. And I forgot that when um, when Bill was doing the show by himself, when I was writing Nori's novel, um, Bill had interviewed Andy Bashago, and I've never listened to it. So somewhere in the Future Theater Andy. archives, futuretheater.com, you can find the Bashago interview. And the reason I bring him up is because he heavily depends upon the Montauk story for his story to work. Did you know that? Oh, I know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And his story is changing as we speak, but the Montauk part—it's evolving. Has, yes. Yeah, but I think the Montauk part has more potential than than Bishago's story because I've always liked so many of the elements of the Montauk story, including all the musical parts. You know about that? Uh, yes. The invention of the wall of sound sort of came yeah. out of that. That's pretty cool stuff. It's and, true. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, and then the big thing is uh, Chubby Checker. Supposedly, Chubby Checker was in the employ of these people. He was like works for them, and his whole his, the sound of his record when it came out was fundamentally different. The twist than right. other records, and it just caught on. You had to get up and dance. It was, um, you know, music had become really and truly uh, a. a, a Moving a moving force, a force for moving and shaking, you know. Uh, but oh, that's what you know. That's what I meant to tell you. I meant to tell you this: that Chubby Checker's first appearance on American Bandstand—that's the show you were on all mm-hmm. the way back in nineteen. What? That would have been nineteen sixty. Sixty-one, I want to say. Well, his first appearance on Bandstand is now on YouTube. Ah, now, we'd be oh, wow. the so I was having a tough time downloading it, but on your machine, you could download it. You would probably see yourself on Maybe. American Bandstand with wow. all those Ithic buttons. 1961, a young to, Dick yeah, the, yeah, the thing is that little theater, the little place where you danced. Was little so theater small. on 44th Street. It was so small that you literally could, you know, if if the camera pans, you know, you might see. Right, exactly. That would be. And they're all, and and you just saw the camera panning all these Catholic school girls in their uniforms. I couldn't pick you out, but it but (laughs) it kept on. The download kept on hanging up. So on your machine, that's faster than mine. You you'll probably see yourself. Yeah, but Chubby Checker, according to the Montauk, the the movie. um, This is the book. The something, oh gosh, I can't think of the name of the title of it. It's something, the music. Um, it's the Sound of Music? Mm, no. You know, P- Peter Moon is the publisher of these books, right. a whole series right, of them. And this right. one is something about the I can't remember. Nichols. <laughs> Nichols, I think, wrote it. Um, okay. Nichols and Moon. And it's all about the music and how this guy, as uh, part of his whole being one of the Montauk boys, also did all this weird stuff to American music to make it so that, you know how they, they used to be afraid that we would all become like um, jungle creatures? We would all be dancing around like crazy? And remember that was the actual racist worry? Do you remember that? Right, and that's why that's that's how you got hmm. the Anslinger Act against marijuana. Yeah. It was young people dancing like crazy <laughs> and, and you had all the evil black Have... people and evil Hispanics <laughs> Hold on. tempting all these understand. white girls with no, no, drugs I, and turning them I into completely sexy. understand. I completely understand because I've been to raves. I know that exactly what you're talking about. That's exactly how people dance, like crazy animals yeah, in the jungle. Yeah, they do crazy. Really? It's I awesome, yeah. yeah. Well, but you've never been to a rave. That's the thing. That's a, do you have to take a drug to do that? No, I'm well, you take X. Well, you take X, right? <laughs> no, you don't take well, X. No, no, people yeah. do take Molly's ecstasy. You know, they, they take those drugs of, you know, some of them. MDMA. I've been, I've, 
I've been well, to raves and not taking anything. So, you know, and I know a lot of people that go to raves just for the music. Yeah, right. But they go to party and, you know, meet people and stuff. And well, But not only raves. Like I've, like, I've been to a lot of different concerts. I've been to, like, heavy metal concerts with friends. And guess what? They're mosh pits, man. It's crazy people jumping around, jumping on each other, hitting each other, kicking each other. I mean, it's, it's, it's awesome. That's Back a the, metal concert. So- well, back in the 80s, there was a movement called Death Rock. I don't know if they're still around. but Oh, yeah, Death Rock. Death Rock, yeah. That actually evolved to death metal. That's oh, what... is that what happened to it? <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. No, because back, in, uh, because back on, the lo- uh, on New York's Lower East Side in the, in the early 80s, there were, uh, there were these groups that were, in fact, there's this guy, Taibi, who's always on MSNBC. His father. Matt Taibi. Was, yeah, with this, but uh, but his Try father that covered real quick. Death Rock and covered all the, the this like serial killer guy back the Lower East Side in the early ni- in the nineteen eighties, who 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 was following this group, and the symbol was a champagne glass turned upside down, and and they would write on walls the parties over. It was really anti yuppie because all the yuppies were gentrifying, of the old neighborhoods in New York. And so there was this group that was a, that was a death rock group and they would smash their guitars and attack the audience. And this guy, I forget his name, um, but he actually killed his girlfriend and made her into a pot of soup and served that soup to the police station um, on the I mean, unbelievable. And the village voice. How your stories go so dark so fast. And the the village voice. Well, remember that was in the book. That was in the book of the killer next door and, um, and, or, or walking time bombs. And um, the village voice had this incredible article on this guy and the headline was, and, and Taibi covered this story, the Taibi father covered the story, and the headline was, is it soup yet? Right, and Angel's not going to get that because that commercial is long gone. You I'm see? never going to eat soup again, that's for sure. Yeah, Ugh. anyway, I think we probably need to bring in Nick now. Okay. Break time, Bill. Break say. time, break time. Okay, so we are your co-host, Bill. That's me and Nancy Burns. We're on the Dark Matter Digital Network and PSN Radio. And this is Future Theater. And our guest, who's coming on right after these messages, is Nick Redfern talking about his book, Bloodline. Love, 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 love. The UFO phenomenon, either we like it or not, is already very much part of our reality. I've been on panels with uh, military people who, you know, claim that they've seen the aliens buzzing our missile silos. They have very large eyes, and, you know, I found their stare extremely difficult to bear. This is Martin Willis, the host of Podcast UFO, and we are here on the Dark Matter Radio Network every Wednesday from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It is my commitment to bring you an entertaining weekly show that takes a hard look at the UFO phenomena. Are they extraterrestrial? Well, are they interdimensional? Are they time travelers or something we have not even thought of yet? We explore these questions with interesting guests and witnesses from all around the globe. In addition, we bring you weekly UFO news with Open Minds TV, Alejandro Rojas. Thank you for listening, and remember, keep your eyes to the sky. 
Imagine no longer being tied down to your computer, but having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application. The talk shows you follow now follow you. And your iPhone is now the fastest and easiest way to stay connected to the best talk radio on the Internet. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Mobile talk radio from TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. Put a team of professional consultants behind your home or business computer with key information solutions. Providing solutions to your internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology. Preventative maintenance and networking support. Hardware and custom built computers. Let key information solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly, monthly, or annual rates to fit anyone's budget. Call Key Information Solutions now. 954 That's 954-973-3374. Or visit keyinformation.com. This is James Swagger, host of Capricorn Radio. I'm also an author, engineer, and researcher. Capricorn Radio covers alternative history, alternative science, philosophy, and truth orientated discussions. We are proud to be on the Dark Matter Radio Network live at 8 p.m. Saturdays, Eastern Standard Time. You can catch extra info on darkmatterradio.net, jameswagger.com for yours truly, and capricornmembers.com for the archives. Don't forget, truth is not democratic, truth is truth. folks and thanks for sticking with us with our guest Nick Redfern and we're going to be talking about his book Bloodline of the Gods and I tell you I, re- I read this book and Nick has done again well, he Nick usually does a masterful job in pulling together the scholarship you know yes. there were so many I have to say there are so many UFO books out there in which they're declamatory the person just claims this and claims this and claims this but one of the things Nick does, and he's done this in this book, he's done it with his book on alien viruses, he's done it with, he's, he's done it with his book about the silencers, um, Nick actually goes out and he gets the scholarship that underpins the story. So it's not a declamatory book making all these claims, it's basically looking at the scholarship behind these things. So I want to welcome Nick to the show. Thanks for joining us. And um, I'm fascinated. Tell us why you wrote this book in the first place. Well, the main reason, Bill, was that um, it's like a you know certain aspects of ufology. You can find a little bit here and a little bit there. And yes, you know, dozens of books have been written on things like Roswell, Area 51, alien abductions. But there are, you know, different areas of the subject that fascinate people, but there's really not much to go on. And so when I was um, sort of scouting around for ideas for other books, I thought, well, you know, why not look at this issue of the whole 
um, RH negative blood angle and how it ties in with the UFO subject. And what sort of surprised me really was the fact that, yes, you can find mainstream medical articles you know, online all about RH negative blood, and, and you can find UFO themed articles as well, but that's about right. it. There'd never been really a comprehensive study of the entire phenomenon. So I thought, well, you know, why not fill that gap? It would be, you wouldn't be, I wouldn't be going over old ground. I wouldn't be repeating somebody else's work. You know, I would be presenting a new concept for the first time in a book for people to see and, and hopefully you know, understand and, and appreciate. Well, well, Nick, could you um, start us out with what does the RH factor mean? Yeah, and when sure. it comes to blood types and stuff? Yeah. Well, basically, um, the statistics, it's, it's difficult to get an actual figure, but somewhere between about 80 to 85 to 91% of the human population has RH-positive blood. Right. Now, RH stands for rhesus, from, from, the, from the rhesus macaque, the rhesus monkey, and um, which essentially we can all be sort of traced back to, except for... So are we, could, could you say that we're all rhesus pieces? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. Just had to, yeah. had to yeah. do it, I'm sorry. I just had, had to, to happen. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, we could actually. Uh, <laughs> apart from, that is, sort of 10 to 12 to 15% of the population, which is RH negative. Mm -hmm. Now, RH-negative individuals lack um, the rhesus factor, as it's called. In other words, they're slightly different to the rest of the human population. And the big question is, you know, why should that be? Right. And not only that, why should there be so many odd differences as well between people who are RH-negative and those who are RH-positive? Well, like, what are some of the odd differences? Mm. Well, for example, if you have, uh, hypothetically, a mother who's pregnant and she's RH negative and the father is RH positive, when the two combine, you know, the egg, the sperm and the baby starts to go, when everything combines, the mother's um, nervous system essentially tries to literally kill the unborn fetus and Fortunately, today there are you know there are uh, medicines uh, that will actually combat this to prevent the um, the unborn excuse me the mother's mm -hmm. uh, body from actually attacking the child. It's almost as if the unborn fetus is viewed as something alien, and by yeah, alien, yeah. you know, I mean you yeah. know something that's just not right for the for the mother. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, there's also the issue of uh, type O negative blood, which is known as the universal donor. Mm -hmm. Because, um, you know, if say, for example, if you're type A positive or B positive and, you know, you have a car accident, you lose a lot of blood and you need a transfusion, you have to be very careful that you get the right blood, you know. Um, yep. You can fall into a state of deep shock or, or worst case scenario, die. Mm -hmm. But type O negative um, is called the universal donor because it can be injected into anybody. Mm -hmm. um, Pretty much, but, the, but that has that's what not, I am actually. That's, that's what, what I, am. I am too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that doesn't have anything, however, to do with the RH factor, right? Well, yeah, it's yeah. negative because you don't have the because you don't have the um, the RH protein in your blood. That's the difference. Wait, Correct. wait. So the universal donor O negative 
is an RH negative person also? That's correct. Hey, that could be me, an angel. It is you. We yes. Could be, yeah. We could be reptilians. I think we're moving toward reptilians here. Yeah, why not? I can, see, I can see the skills well, well, the fascinating, I know. The fascinating thing about the RH factor is it is a protein that is on the surface of the red blood cell. And so the, the thing that actually Nick points out in his book, which really surprised me, is that the, um, is that the rhesus monkey, the rhesus monkey, is the closest simian, the closest biped to human beings. What is it, Nick? 93% of all the DNA in the, uh, we have 93% of all the DNA in the rhesus monkey. Is that, is that correct? Well, uh, it's actually, to, to, you know, it's an extremely high percentage, and this is something that demonstrates, you know, how we have this lineage. But yes, that's, that's the important thing to remember is RH, it's the RH factor, the rhesus factor. And if you don't have that factor, you fall into the definitively negative category. Um, and so but, that's the big difference. And, right, um, but yeah, but isn't it fascinating that, if they dis- that if these two scientists discover this factor in looking at the blood of rhesus monkeys, what, right, and what in, in year 19, approximately? In, did... About the 1940s, 1930s, 1940s, they were doing this. But the fascinating thing is that you've got a strain of human beings, and this is what, what I loved about the book, you've got the strain of human beings that doesn't have the protein around the red blood cells that the rhesus monkey has. So where did these human beings come from if they're our closest bipedal relative? That's the weird thing. That's what Nick is exploring. Yeah, that, that's the important question. You know, not so much, yes, there are people who are different to the rest of us, but why is that the case? Why is that, you know, right? If, yeah, if the theory of evolution, you know, is 100% correct, then arguably we should all have that RH positive factor. You know, that, that's, that's how it should be, but it actually isn't. And so this takes us down a sort of a very different pathway. Now, one of the things I talk about in the book after sort of um, getting into the issue and explaining the nature of blood and the different groups and, you know, um, negative blood, RH negative, etc., etc., right. is to look at the angle of why certain um, people around the world, actually all certain areas, have a higher percentage than normal. Now, right. in most nations, you know, and most, you know, whether it's, um, you know, across the board in the human race, it, the, the figure is roughly 10 to 15%. However, if you look at the Basque people of Spain and also portions of France, their percentages are incredibly high, anywhere between 40 and about 55%. And there are a lot of intriguing things about the Basque people. They have their own unique language in Europe, um, mm-hmm. which is quite unlike any other European language. Now, you know, I mean, I know for sure, you know, coming from, from the UK myself, that you can find some words in the French language and the German language, etc., etc., that are very similar you know, to, to English words. But the difference is with the Basque people, their language is just totally different, arguably totally alien. So not only do they have this um, extremely different RH negative factor, they also have um, 
this angle of a, of a unique language, and their, their bone structure as well is slightly different. You, you can tell the Basque people that you know they stand out very differently. Well, in what in what way different their bone structure? Well, certain you know if you look at some of the photographs, they have a sort of a more heavier brow, um, sort of a stronger looking jaw, more mm. muscular, bulky to start with. You know, rather than sort of guys who bulk yeah. up in the gym. That's that's sort of their natural. Um, form. Now, what's interesting is that in the area where the um, the Basque people originated, at one point it was heavily populated by Cro-Magnon man. Now, what we find is that in other parts of the world where Cro-Magnon man proliferated, mm-hmm. that there are also higher percentages of Rh negatives there as well. So, in other words, what we're looking at possibly is a key to understanding that a Cro-Magnon man probably was a RH negative because we have, you know, we've got the locations, we've got the similarities between the Cro-Magnons and the Basques, and we've got the RH negative high percentages in the areas where the Cro-Magnon people lived. So in other words, we can deduce, we can't prove it, we can deduce from that that there's a connection between all this that goes right back to that era. And here's the fascinating thing. Here's the fascinating thing. First of all, you point to an area in the Pyrenees, southern France and northern Spain. And this is kind of a pivotal point in European history to begin with. Because remember, when, um, the, um, when Islam crossed the Mediterranean Sea and invaded Europe, and they invaded Spain, and Spain for a long period of time, they were the Moors. Um, they tried to invade France and they were stopped in the Pyrenees at the Battle of Tours at the, by uh, Charles Martel. That was 742. And, and the whole Song of Roland is, is exactly taking place in those mountain passes in, in the Pyrenees. So, it's very, so that area is critical to European history. But the other thing that's fascinating is that not only is the Basque language different. First of all, in an area where that is the area where Indo-European languages grew up. I mean, you're right, German, English, uh, German, Spanish, French, Latin, Celtic, these were all Indo-European languages. But Basque in the center of Indo-European culture in Europe is not only non-Indo-European, people say that that particular language was spoken by Neolithic Stone Age man. That's how old that language is. And the funny part about it is, unlike European languages, unlike Indo-European languages that have um, suffixes and where the pronouns change, in Basque, everything changes. So, for example, um, in uh, the, uh, the phrase in Basque, I see the mountain, would be um, ik mendek akusten det. That's a Basque phrase for I see the mountain. But in plural, when you pluralize it and say we see the mountains, it is guk mendiak akusten de gu. So the whole sentence changes just by pluralization. And, and that aspect of language is, is, is incredibly old. It predates Indo-European. It predates all the languages that, beca- uh, that have well, become is it modern a, languages. Does it represent a higher level of cognition, or does it represent no, it, a it primitive re- way of... 
it represents a primitive way because the only way in a non-written, in a pre-literate language, that was the only way you could carry things like plurals, like tense, like um, uh, uh, the declensions of nouns and things like that. So that's why Basque is so fascinating among the fact that its vocabulary is nothing like Indo-European vocabulary. Yeah, and I think that's an important thing. I mean, you know, it, it would be one intriguing thing alone for the Basque people and the Cro-Magnons, potentially, you know, to have this ancient language. And, and then on top of that, to have unique blood as well. And I think those are important factors to bear in mind that, you know, physically and in terms of their development, you know, with language, everything about them is different. They, they just totally stand apart. Well, well, Nick, right. are we, uh, do we get into, in, the, in your part of the story, in your research, do you get into the whole bloodline of Christ um, storyline when it comes to no, the Basque no, people? And Not really, no. I mean, I was sort of limited into the, in the, you know, the word count that, that New Page allows for their books. Um, but in saying that, <laughs> uh, what I tried to do was, was sort of demonstrate the, the genetic link between the Cro-Magnons and the present day and demonstrate how, by taking it back even further, we may have seen extraterrestrial sort of tinkering, if you like, and uh, modification of early well, human it, it, species. In, so that's another question. In your research, what did you posit was the reason for this odd situation? Did you suggest that it might be terrestrial manipulation? Yeah, one of the things I looked into was the stories um, that sort of go back into, you know, very distant times, tens and tens of thousands of years ago. And granted, as I point out in the book, a lot of it is, is speculative. But I talk about the research of people like Zechariah Sitchin, who talked about the, the so-called Anunnaki coming down mm. and essentially you know, using the earth as a, as a mining facility and utilizing primitive humanoids and possibly upgrading those primitive humanoids for their own purposes. And I talk about how one of his theories was that this may have related to Cro-Magnon man, possibly Neanderthal man. And, um, and then from there, in other words, it sort of sowed the seeds for human civilization, but with a certain percentage being somewhat different because of these, this sort of extraterrestrial intervention, if you like. Well, what's so fascinating is well, I interviewed um, a Sitchin um, for UFO Magazine, and one of the things he liked to talk about a lot was the issue of that there was a new type of human being on the planet. And this was characterized in biblical times as the encounters between um, the original human beings that were created and the Nephilim, those who fell from the heavens. And that they, and that the Bible, Genesis specifically talks about the sons of men and the sons of Nephilim mating. And, and that was supposedly a bad thing, but we now know that there was interbreeding between Neanderthal and Cro-Magnon human beings. Like we know that because we can actually trace the DNA from Neanderthals to um, modern human beings and it does turn up. So there was interbreeding between that. So at least 
in terms of this new species that turn up on Earth, Cro-Magnon, that there was interbreeding between the two types of humanoid creatures. Yeah, and we know, and we know that also because we can prove that they were around at the same time. Now, granted, um, Neanderthal man died out, um, and we're not really. There's a lot of debate as to how and why that should have been the case. For example, you know, the, the more down-to-earth theories are it was just competing factors, and Cro-Magnon man was the stronger one and won out. Other theories uh, have been suggested that the Neanderthals may have just been, you know, genetically absorbed into the Cro-Magnons just due to a larger population. Of well, that's the, uh, that's, the, uh, that's the current theory that Neanderthal was yeah. absorbed genetically into the Cro-Magnon yeah. population. But there are other, you know, there are anomalies with those theories as well. For example, people have said, well, you know, the Cro-Magnons may have been more skilled farmers and fighters, but the Neanderthals were, were skilled farmers and they were very robust and strong and muscular. You know, you wouldn't want to take them on in a fight, you know. Um, and so for that reason, one of the things I talk about in the book is quite dark and disturbing research that's been undertaken by a number of nations today into what are called racially profiled viruses, the idea mm -hmm. of trying to create wow. a, a virus which will just target a specific wow. type of person. Now, wow. you know, that's, in our world, that would be extremely dangerous if something like that was developed and, and utilized. Um, and, I, and I talk about the theories in the book that have been put forward that maybe Neanderthal man was wiped out to allow Cro-Magnon man to flourish more or to operate in a better scenario in terms of, of this slave race, in, rather than having competing factions just have one. Well, well we know there was another aspect of it too, which was that um, about 45, 50,000 years ago, that the human brain began to evolve. It began to differentiate. It's called the asymmetric brain, where one hemisphere of the brain took over certain kinds of functions and another hemisphere of the brain took over other side of the uh, functions. And we know that happened because of the advent of tool making. When you look at Stone Age tools, what you see is that certain tools, let's just say a, um, an, uh, um, an, a, 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 the head of an axe or a chopping tool, <clears throat> you'll see that one side of the chopping tool is more worn than the other side of the chopping tool. So the theory is that the side that's worn, let's say that's the right-hand side of the tool, that was because the person wielding that tool was right-handed. And since in the human brain, the left side of the brain controls the right side of the body and vice versa, then that would be um, speculating, and now we know that to be true, that the left side of the brain in, in, in right-handed people is the dominant side of the brain. And of course, that's where the seat of language is. So the development of language, and this is why it's important in talking about the Basque people, the development of language and the development of handedness, dexterity, happen at the same time. And, and the development of language is vitally important because when language is developed, language is basically the tool that creates a social order and creates, and creates a civilization. So with language, 
you then are able to move around at night because you can talk to people, you can communicate verbally with people. Language also means that you've actually created fire because a jaw that is for tearing like canines tear suddenly becomes an articulator and you have fire that, uh, that actually softens food. So there's development of fire, the development of language, the development of tools. That's the basis for civilization. So that species that developed that would eventually absorb and replace the civilization that didn't. Or we had alien intervention, which is... Well, that's where, what I'm, I'm saying. That would be the... If you're positing alien intervention... And if I were an alien, one of the things that I would do would be to manipulate the humanoid species genetically so that the, the brain in that species, monkeys don't have this um, um, asymmetric brain, right. to develop the brain to the point where the brain was able, where, where it's called predicative where one part of the brain literally holds another part of the brain. And since language itself is predicative, then, and tools are predicative, you hold tools, that would be the spark that kind of sets one branch of humanity off from another branch of humanity. And, and that's why the Basque is so fascinating, because you wonder how these people flourished between two Latin civilizations, like the, uh, Hispanics and Gauls. Right, and they're still there now, right? Yeah, yeah. In fact, in fact, not only are they there now, they are a revolutionary group in that area. I mean, they're fighting um, um, uh, uh, the Spanish government for sovereignty. So, but Nick, you also in the book go into the whole nature of alien abduction, you talk about the Betty and Barney Hill story. How do you relate that to this? Well, yeah, I mean, I should stress that people are, are sort of wondering. The book's about sort of about 250, 60 pages, and I think only about 30 is sort of related to the ancient astronaut and anarchy section. Uh, much of the book focuses on um, the whole abduction angle, but from the the genetic issue, not not just from the angle of you know, I, I've tried to shy away from the angle of, well, they're just trying to figure out what's going on with us because I think that's ridiculous. I mean, right. an advanced species coming here, they would be able to understand our genetic makeup and understand pretty much all about us in no time at all. But the fact that we have this ongoing abduction program, which is the best way to describe it, to me is evidence of some sort of ongoing program you know it's not just to figure out who we are and then go home this we're we're being used in some sort of fashion now this sort of brings it to the fore the fact that many people who are alien abductees or who have a deep fascination with the phenomenon or have had strange UFO encounters we have a high percentage of RH negatives wow. um, I, I don't think that's coincidence. Oh. You find a lot of people um, that are, you know, interested in the subject. When they find out about this RH negative phenomenon, they get their blood checked and they find out they're RH well, negative. I mean, well, Nick, can... a... yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I'll go just ahead. give you a classic example. Um, mm -hmm. When I first announced the book on Facebook a few weeks ago, um, there was a debate between about 30 or 40 people commented on it. 
and nearly all of them were RH negative. You know, they said, well, you know, I'm interested in UFOs, I want to read the book because I'm RH negative. And wow. in other words, whereas it's 10%, 15% of the average population that are RH negative, it's much higher within the sort of wow. circles we're moving, like UFOs, etc. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, it, go ahead. Well, I just want to know, in current research right now, what doctors depend on, does the R, does lacking the protein around the red blood cells in the Rh negative blood, does that uh, give any advantages? Is it is it genetically a little more advanced, or is it actually? Uh, the opposite and second question has to do with all the junk DNA. I've always been fascinated by the fact that the rhesus monkey probably has zero junk DNA, and we have so much what we DNA we don't understand. So I wonder if those two questions are somehow related. I hope. Well, yeah. I mean, about in, in terms of the advantages. I mean, really, the only disadvantage to having to being Rh negative is this issue of the, the threat to the unborn baby. Other than that, there really are no major differences that you, you know, can have an, an but adverse But can you have a baby it. with a certain... Uh, you, can, you, can you mate with someone uh, where that doesn't happen? Yes? Well, yeah, if you're both Rh negative, that's fine. If it's Rh negative versus Rh positive... And, you know, the, the you know? straight negative, she has to have, you know, the medication to prevent her own body from attacking the oh. fetus. That, that has Thank to you. happen. Yeah. And, and that only happens. And that only happens. See, normally a mother's blood and the blood of the fetus don't mix, um, especially for a first pregnancy. It doesn't mix. It's only in subsequent pregnancies when um, that issue turns up and it's only if the blood happens to mix because the two bloodstreams are separated. That's okay. one of the kind of fail-safe mechanisms so where does of the, the gestation process. So where does the problem come in? The problem, well, the problem comes, comes in... When they Go mix. ahead, Nick. Yeah, the problem comes when they mix. And, um, and then what happens is that, you know, the, the mother's body basically is alerted to the fact that, hey, you know, the child is different and but if they don't, hostile. But Bill was just saying they don't normally mix. I don't understand. That's the part I don't get. Well, the bloodstreams well, don't mix, yeah. but if there is a problem and the mother's blood comes in contact with the blood of the, of the fetus, of the unborn child, then the mother's blood begins to reject so only. So fetus. is this only in a problem pregnancy that this would manifest? Yes. In a normal pregnancy that would just shoot yes. on through? Yes. Well, and how many, um, how many people are aware of this and know about this? Because I've had two children. I had no concept of this. Uh, it never came up. And, but anyway, let's go back to the alien stuff. Nick, does, can you f f tell from everything you've learned about the, the RH uh, factor that it gives you the, some weird ideas or, you know? Is, well, yes, what do you think? it does. I'll tell you for why. The main reason being that, as I said, that a lot of people within the subject are RH negative. True. Uh, I mean, that's a fact, you know, that um, you can find numerous people who um, have had abduction experiences or RH negative, who've had contactee cases, who've had profound close encounters. Yeah. I have, I have an entire chapter in the book on people who are abductees who've then been abducted by sort of black ops military people who've aggressively questioned them about their blood. Are they RH negative? Suggesting that some 
whether it's an arm of government or some sort of shadow agency outside of government, I don't know. But they, yeah. they seem to be clearly aware of the RH phenomenon as well. Wow. Well, you know, we talked before you came on about all this new uh, type of movie in which, you know, someone is divergent. Someone has something weird in their bloodstream. Uh, We know the army is trying to develop a super soldier. Um, We just know that from people that have come out and talked about it. Um, And, and of course, we get the benefit of it in terms of our own health business, right? Stuff that leaves that program enters the the royal, you know, the general bloodstream. But this... um, Anyway, didn't have a question. Well, no, I mean, <laughs> um, but, but Nick, you also in the But I wanted in to just book, ask, no, wait, wait, I did have a question. I wanted to ask Nick, while you were writing the book, did you suddenly start seeing these movies like Lucy? And, and did it pop out at you that the media is trying to tell us something? There's um, something going on with the bloodstream well, it and stuff? Actually, it actually didn't. But I mean, I can see now that, you know, you can make a case for that. And I mean, there's no doubt that the, the more our technology develops, I'm not entirely sure that despite what someone said, that it actually always is to our advantage. I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book um, is the whole issue of of potentially one day, you know, babies could be grown or fetus could be grown into the baby outside of the mother, you know, in in Mm -hmm. like an artificial womb. And a lot of research has been done into these issues, you know, with some success. Um, you know, maybe that's going to be an inevitability. I don't know. Yeah, you could but, go and um, buy a custom baby. Yeah, well, you know, well, design a baby. You know, blonde hair, blue eyes. Before you know it, you know, we're going down that path. Even so. well, that's your eugen- well, uh, uh, well, that was the whole eugenics movement in the early twentieth century. That was part of that was part of what was yeah. when we discovered um, genetics uh, right around the turn of the century. We um, there were scientists obviously German scientists, who, who, who thought that you could actually program what kind of child you would have. And, and this was at the same time that you had uh, the Maria Orsic and, and the Vril Society, and this was right after Helena Blavatsky and Theosophy. But they didn't also, have the knowledge about RH, the RH factor at this they point. They didn't, because that wasn't discovered until the 1940s. But what they did have was this idea of genetics. And so you suddenly have... And what did that wind up in? Judenfrei. You had the whole point of Germans wiping out, that's who invented ethnic cleansing. Because yeah, what they in, wanted in to do was country, preserve some, that. And that was Joseph country, Mengele. But in this country, some surprising people got behind this idea as well. People that we revere today, if I'm not mistaken. Well, like Crick and Plan, Watson. Plan, and Planned Parenthood. In other words, um, I guess it takes a lot of courage to not try to perfect your own race. Since you can perfect dogs and you can perfect plants and you can graft trees together. So I guess it just takes courage to just let nature take over, perhaps. Well, I don't know. Here's the th- well, here's the thing. I mean, Nick, you point out that the RH negative population has certain kinds of personality differences from the RH positive um, population. Yeah, tell us. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of people who, see, who feel more sort of, um, not necessarily even had UFO encounters, but feel drawn to that sort of world, you know, to read about the subject and write about the subject they seem to, you know, have a higher percentage of RH negative. Well, has this um, been your, your own research, or are you finding this also on the web? Other people are, are noticing this? 
Oh yeah, I mean you can you know you can find a lot of data on this where various people have researched. That's why it's so you know important because we can actually. It's not like it's all coming from one person and we're thinking, well, mm -hmm. hang on, why has no one else been able to? And just you know, to, just to ask a you know a really really stupid question: getting yourself tested for the Rh factor is a whole separate test uh, than just figuring out your blood type. Is that correct? Well, yeah, I mean, you'd have to you'd have to go to a doctor. I mean, I honestly don't know what what my um, blood group is. I, I just don't oh, know. Oh, come on. No, oh. I, I truly don't know. I mean, I've, Why I've don't never... people know? You know, and, and I well, knowing you were coming on, we well, were talking... Well, you should, only because if you carry a card that says what your blood type is, then God forbid, if you ever need a transfusion, no, right. um, know. they know right away what it is. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and you're and you're British, and you won't be able to make yourself understood mm -hmm. if you're in a panic. <laughs> <laughs> Especially in Texas, Nick. Nobody <laughs> understands yeah. it down there. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, I mean, I think it's you know it would be intriguing for uh, you know for everybody. I say everybody, but I mean, if, you know, if somebody said, hey, you know, why don't we all get our blood checked and actually see what it is if you don't well, know? And see. That's what I'm asking. All the people who seem to contact you have already gone through this process. They seem to be sure of their blood. Well, type. yeah, I mean, some of them may know because, you know, they've been into the hospital and so they know. I mean, knock on wood, you know, I've never been into a hospital. Mm -hmm. I've never been to the hospital. had to go into a hospital. I've never... Yeah. I don't have any diseases, illnesses, or conditions. I'm, the worst I've ever had in my entire 50 years is... Yeah, but that, Nick, that, tells, that tells me you're the RH negative mm -hmm. guy. You said <laughs> well, like one of them. I don't know about that, but, um, but I <laughs> but ought to find out. But, I mean, one yeah. of the interesting things um, when you look at the RH negatives is that you have both physical issues. You know, as I said, you're drawn to people drawn to this subject, but you also have physical issues as well. For example, um, a small percentage of the regular population is born with an extra uh, vertebra. Uh, that's just a natural thing, but there's a higher percentage of people born with this extra vertebra in the RH negatives. Now, what's is interesting... Where, where, is on the spine, where, where on the spine might it be located? The actual location? Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so of the extra vertebra. Um... I can find that out for you while we're talking. Well, you okay. spread uh, out. And just but no, the reason, um, I'm, the reason I'm asking is because when I had my first baby, they had to break my tailbone, um, which is embarrassing ouch. to say, I guess. But ouch. I was under medication at that point. They had given me a shot, and it, who cared, you know? Mm -hmm. It was great. It was great. I'm going to tell you, I don't know what the drugs were, but that was great. And then what I was going to say is that, you know, the, the, um, a small percentage is born with this extra vertebra. Now, what's interesting is that the Betty and Barney Hill case, when yes. they were abducted in 1961, well, when uh, Barney was under hypnosis, bear in mind this was long before the whole RH link to abductions became talked about, Barney said that when he was laid out on this table, he said the aliens did a curious thing to him. He said that they were running their fingers up and down his spine as if they were trying to count his vertebra. Wow. Now that was, you know, that was years before, um, you know, the and whole thing. You, uh, was that in began. the book, or did, uh, was that in the book, or did you listen to the? No, that was in tapes? the tapes. That was in the tapes. Oh, that, was the, that was the um, original uh, hypnosis tapes that were uh -huh. used in um, John Fuller's book, The Interrupted Journey. Okay. Well, nice, thanks. But, and so, um, you know, things like that, you know, are little sort of snippets that show that 
something was going on in ufology in relation to all this long before it actually started to come out, you know, in the last few years. Yes, and then and then think about what they did to Barney after they ran their fingers or or, or, or they did some kind of palpating his spine to, to, uh, to check for vertebra. Then they put that suction device over his genitals and they were pulling out semen and sperm and then they gave Betty amniocentesis. So this whole thing had to do with fertility. Yeah, they were sex obsessed. But but don't you think it could have been a government operation since the way she describes the people, they almost look like, you know, Well, you know, that is one theory that's been put forward is the whole sort of line of something like an MK Ultra thing. But I mean, what is interesting is that, you know, when you talk about the whole amniocentesis thing. Um, Basically, what this is, it's like a process of using a needle to secure skin cells and what are called alpha fetoproteins from the fetus, uh, blood cells from the baby. Uh, When when this happens, blood cells from the the baby can actually enter uh, the mother's bloodstream. And this is what Bill was talking about, how normally you don't get this crossover. But when 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 a woman is exposed to... uh, amniocentesis, that's when the risk occurs because when the needle is used um, to get blood from the, from the fetus, if in the process some of those blood cells break wow. off and enter the mother's bloodstream, that's when the problem occurs. Yeah, but- it's, not ju- it's not the fact that, you know, the mother's Rh negative and the baby isn't. It's mm-hmm. when the two blood mix and right, it's right, interesting Nick, that Betty Hill was given this amnio or yeah. something like an amnio sentesis sentesis but but here's the thing why couldn't you just ask the father uh what his blood everybody should well, know they do that's exactly what uh, no that's exactly what they but do wait, before wait, a gynecologist is going to undertake this uh, this thing what he'll if, ask the father what yeah, his wait, blood type is what but wait what if the woman is making up who the father is what if the woman knows it's somebody else and doesn't know that you know in other words just calling yourself the father isn't often enough when it's coming to this serious well, problem yeah but it, don't forget it's only a problem if the blood if, if the, the blood the yeah blood of the and the fetus's blood mix. If they don't mix, right. it, you know, if they haven't had like uh, the, the blood cells haven't broken off and entered the mother's right. bloodstream, then it isn't an issue. So. And, per- <coughs> and amniocentesis is becoming less of an issue now yeah. with ultrasound. Mm. Right? I mean, you don't need to do amniocentesis to find out the sex of your child. You just mm. do ultrasound because you could see the child in the womb. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of intriguing areas. Well, I mean, what I find interesting is that some of the sort of science and medicine that we're using, it seems to be, you know, a little bit behind what is going on in the abductions. If somebody's doing a more sort of advanced kind of probing and investigation and experimentation, and we are sort of, you know, a century behind or whatever, but we're, you know, we're slowly catching up. And again, this sort of suggests to me, I get some sort of program and, and this whole angle sort of then um, expands into other things I talk about in the book, like the black-eyed children. You know, that yes, go ahead and talk about weird. that. That fascinated me too. Oh, oh, what is the theory behind that? Mm. Well, the black-eyed children, it's an interesting phenomenon because for the most part, it's relatively new. You know, you can go back 
thousands of years and interpret strange sights in the sky as UFOs. We've had abductions going on for 50, 60 years and even longer than that, you know, when you talk to families. But the black-eyed children are a relatively new phenomenon the last 15 years or so. And a few people have come forward to talk about how they'd ex had experiences with the black-eyed children in the 80s. But for the most part, it's for the last 10, 15 years. And they're typically... Um, Usually around about the age of 11 to about 14 is, is characteristic of what people report in these black-eyed children. Mm -hmm. There's a higher percentage of, of males, of like boys than girls, and they look strange. They look pale, they look sort of anemic, and they have these solid black eyes, hence the name. And by solid black, I don't just mean the center part. I mean the entire eye, including the white of the eye. But right. where, where, would these, where would these people be able to hide? Well, this is a big question. I mean, it sort of begs the question, where are they coming from? Where do they surface? Where do they go to? One of the theories is that they are extraterrestrial hybrids. And, and typically, when they're seen, it's very often late at night, and they wear black hoodies. So in other words, the darkness and the hoodie affords them a degree of camouflage, uh, which might be the whole point of why they tend to surface at night and where, why they wear the hoodies, so they won't mm -hmm. be noticed. Well, do they, tend toward, um, do they tend toward cities or country? Actually, it's a bit of both. Uh, mm -hmm. But the, their typical activity seems to be to try and force their way into people's homes or cars, which is sort of kind of sinister. They ask, they can use the telephone, and they've got to phone the parents or their Well, lost. Nick, how, how many real, I mean, how many people have reported this? This is inside, this, this seems maybe just England? Oh, no, the, the bulk of the reports are in the U.S. I mean, David Weatherly um, is the only person who's written a full-length book on it, and, and it is a full-length book. It, you know, it's hundreds of pages on U.S. citizens who've been you know, had late night bangs on the door, and they open the door, and there's these two creepy, short, skinny little kids, pale as a bottle of milk, with black eyes trying to force their way into the house. David's book, you know, as I said, it's yeah. not like a little self-published pamphlet. It's, it's a full-length book, and, and this is becoming like a real phenomenon. And, and, and the procedure is you don't let them in, right? You lock the door, no, you, you say go... Yeah. And there actually are a few like a vampire, parallels, yeah. like the men in black. You know, the men in black wear, where the black-eyed children come out at night and bang on the doors and they wear black hoodies. You know, the men in black often come out at night and they wear black fedoras and they have that sort of same waxy white skin. Mm -hmm. So maybe there's a connection there. But the other interesting Michael thing, Jackson. <laughs> oh, that's just cold-blooded. <laughs> um, Let the man rest I mean, in pieces. Jeez. But, uh, I mean, one of the interesting things about this whole phenomenon is <laughs> it sort of dovetails with the research of people like David Jacobs, who believes that sort of an underground extraterrestrial army of hybrids is being developed to infiltrate us, and they're refining them to make them look progressively more like us. That might be why in the 70s and 80s we had reports of odd-looking babies and children. And now we have the black-eyed children who look actually quite a lot like us, apart from the eyes. So in other words, perhaps this development process is actually becoming more refined and more skillful in terms of them looking more and more like us. And a parallel, and a whole parallel theory or was that the, in, some of yeah, uh, you had the indigo children back in the 70s and 80s, and now you have the crystal children, and supposedly yeah. they have their own kind of psychic network in which they can communicate telepathically. They are, they are an evolutionary jump 
from indigo children because the indigo children were 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 um they suffered a lot of prejudice in the school system. They were smarter than their classmates. They would challenge the teachers. Teachers would really pick on them a lot. And they really had to go underground and parents would hide the fact that they had children who were that gifted. But now you've got a whole new generation of crystal children who supposedly are even more gifted than the indigos. And I guess that ties in with this idea of black-eyed children who suddenly are this army of parentless children who roam at night. Yeah, and I think it's interesting, you know, that we have these different categories of of advanced children that seem different, that look different, that act different. And and particularly with the black-eyed children, what makes them unique is that, you know, we, we don't know where they come from or where they go to, you know. Are they literally dropped off? You know, that they clearly don't seem to be anybody's children. I mean, we would know if your next-door neighbor had, they had a child who got totally black eyes and white, white skin. You know, so in that sense, who's looking after them? There are a lot of these weird questions that surface in relation to these accounts. And, um, and, and so a lot of the information, yes, some of it's positive, you know, like the indigo children, but all this stuff about the hybrids and infiltration and the, and the black-eyed children, there really isn't anything positive or sort of hopeful about any of that stuff. It's, it's just downright sinister. Well, and then, and then you look, and then you look at um, what Lloyd Pye had. He was the caretaker of the charts of the um, Star Child skull. This skeleton found in a cave in northern Mexico early in the 20th century. And um, when he began doing research, Melanie Young was the nurse who who, um, had the skull. When they began doing research, they found out that um, the skull, that it couldn't have been human because there was nothing about the skull that was human. Uh, uh, The DNA, the, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the male DNA, the female DNA, and the mitochondrial DNA, none of that DNA matched any DNA in the National Institutes of Health uh, genetic database. So that was weird to begin with. Where did this DNA come from? Then the bone, the uh, the cranium, had these red cord-like streaks through it. It was thinner than a human skull, just but more dense than a human skull. You couldn't use cutting tools to get into it. And the eye sockets were all wrong. They were too flat. They were in the wrong place. And the skull was positioned in the wrong place so that the backbone, the spine jutting into the base of the skull, that was unlike any um, balancing of a human skull, especially because the brain was 33% larger than a human brain. And so this was an anomaly. And everybody was saying, oh, that was a boarded baby. That was a baby that basically had an elongated skull because it was found in Mexico. That's what the Maya did to their babies. That's what the Incas did to their babies. But that's wrong. This was not a boarded, this was not a kid on a, on a, a backboard. And then they said, well, the skull was hydrocephalic. You know, it had water on the brain, but skulls that result from having water on the brain are asymmetrical. This skull was totally symmetrical. And so you do see, Nick, these anomalies in, in, in uh, these human beings that don't seem to comport with the rest of human beings. Yeah, no, you're right. And I think, you know, this is when you put all this together, you know, that's when we're seeing 
a bigger picture develop. And, and that's, I think, one of the reasons why the story hasn't been appreciated too much, not through any fault of anybody, but just because when you've got, you know, 200 pieces of a jigsaw and they're just lying randomly, you don't see the picture. But we're now starting to put it all together, I think, and we're realising that, you know, our history as we understand it is as, as we actually understand it. Um, and we have all these genetic issues going back, you know, thousands of years and how they've been incorporated into mythology and folklore and then with modern-day ufology. Something is going on like an undercurrent under the radar and it involves us in some fashion and I'm not entirely sure it, it's a positive fashion. Well, that's why this whole thing about the RH factor is so, is, is so mysterious because if we are so closely related to the rhesus monkey, and if that, and if the rhesus monkey is RH positive, and if evolution is supposed to be the science, then how did we evolve into a, a group, a, a segment of the population, a biological segment that's RH negative from RH positive? Especially if we, if 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 the rhesus monkey and 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 um, humanoids separated X number of millions of years ago, it it from an evolutionary perspective, it makes no sense. No, it doesn't because you know, arguably, we should all be the same. That there's actually no sort of hard and fast consensus as to why we're not. Now, one of the interesting things that I also talk about in the book, and you know, who knows if one day this could be applied to actually provide the answers is the issue of RH negatives and what's become known as inherited memory. Yes. Now, you know, when wow. you, when, you know, if you've got a parents and they have a child, you know, the parent, the child has physical traits of the parents, you know, it might be the same hair color or same shape nose, that kind of thing. And sometimes it can actually also tie in, um, you know, with, for example, um, I mean, I'll give you a classic example. Um, for what, whatever reason, I don't know, but um, I, I just cannot stand the, the smell of mint plants. You know, if you've got like little mint plants in your yard, okay. it just literally makes me feel sick. Now, um, I was telling my dad about this just once randomly, and he said, well, he said, you know, your, your mother, when she was pregnant with you, she couldn't stand the smell of like mint and peppermints. And then after I was born, it went away. You know, mm. so there's kind of like mm -hmm. a, a tie in there. But inherited memory is a very controversial uh, scenario. It's the idea that deeply embedded in our subconscious are literal memories that if we could pull them out, you know, that we could actually access them. That's to say fragments of memories passed down at a genetic level. Now, most people have heard these stories about, you know, somebody has a car accident or a heart attack and they have to have an organ transplant from somebody else who died. Right. And then they start developing a craving for different foods. And then they mm -hmm. find out the person who they had the organ from had, a, had you know, it was one of their favorite foods that the, the person is now craving. Now they've got their organ in their body. That, you know, that's a very viable phenomenon. Missing um, limb syndrome, right? That's what they call that? Well, I don't know. No, that's something else. Any, yeah. But, but there was like a... Um, hold, hold on, the, Nick. Um, go ahead. Nancy, whoever. Oh. No, go ahead. Say, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was just going to say, it, it's, it, it is kind of like, you know, for example, you have a heart attack, your heart's failing, and so you have a heart transplant from someone who had a craving for, I don't know, chocolate chip cookies. Then you find yourself 
craving them yourself. It's the idea that some essence of the person can be transferred from one to another. And the big question is, can it be done with memory? And if it can, that might explain why so many people in the subject gravitate towards towards the subject without knowing why they just feel this compulsion and to give you a few classic examples given that this story goes back into ancient alien times i don't think it's um a coincidence that none other than the most sort of famous author on ancient aliens eric von daniken is rh negative brad steiger has written a lot of books on ancient mysteries and ancient aliens he's rh negative um robert the late robert yeah, um, Robert Anton Wilson was RH negative, mm-hmm. and he claimed um, in the 70s contact from, uh, with beings from Sirius, um, channeling in messages all connected with ancient Egypt. So possibly, you know, if this could be proved and we could find a way to access it, it's not impossible that deep within encoded in our subconscious, there are some of these inherited memories that drive us towards these phenomena to talk about them, to research them them to write them without really knowing why we're doing it it's just something we feel uh, we have to do but we don't know why we feel drawn well, did, to well did you find it uh, uh, uh did you find it fascinating that uh, just very recently this whole spate of exoplanets that have been discovered um there is one i mean like other earths earth two earth three turn up in the constellation in cygnus and ancient civilizations, like um, specifically um, civilizations along the Nile, there were communities that basically laid out their, not streets, but kind of laid out their dwellings to mimic the arrangement of, constella- of the constellation Cygnus. And that really fascinated me. And then Deneb was one of the stars in that constellation. And in the story of the Mexico Roswell, Mexico's Roswell, the, the crash in the Kayami Desert, the group that was reporting on that crash, this goes back to the 70s, this was something that Ruben Oyarte and um, Noe Torres um, investigated. That group called itself the Deneb Group. And the fascinating thing, at least in my experience, was that all the things they said in that Deneb report, we actually found in the Koyami Desert when we investigated that crash on UFO hunters. So there is this link to, these, to the way constellations were thousands and thousands of years ago, and the people on Earth in those ancient civilizations who literally structured their societies, the architecture, the, the organization, the urban organization based on those constellations. What did they know from those constellations? And w- might we find that indeed inhabitants from those places came here? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that raises some interesting questions because I think we don't really give you know, the ancients, the, the credit they deserve. I mean, you know, you, you still see imagery today kind of like um, the classic thing of like the, the caveman, you know, dressed in bearskins and with a club in one hand and dragging his wife back to the cave by the hair. You know, it's sort of this, it's sort of this sort of archetypal dumbed down image that people have. 
not realizing, you know, that ancient man, you know, they had brains bigger than ours. They understood the nature of death. They were extremely skilled artists. You know, you only have to look at some of the European cave paintings done by the Cro-Magnons. Right. I mean, they right. easily rivaled, you know, some of the most sort of prestigious painters of the last couple of hundred years. Right, and they've lasted this long. And if you put if you put firelight or sometimes water would run through underneath and you would have sound and you would it, it looks it looks like horses and things on the on the run with the mm-hmm. flickering the way they, they, they were doing motion they weren't just drawing flat uh, objects right. it That's was a right. movie it would be a theater because you'd go in there but so deep inside the caves um that part is really always strange to me why did man feel at one point they had to go that deep inside to hide their um their art and this weird. is in the very and this is in the very area, Nick, that you say that you say these are where the Basque people lived, right in that area in the Pyrenees. Oh yeah, wow. you know, I mean that's the thing. It's like all focused on you know pretty close to areas, so to speak. And um, you know, I think there's so many mysteries that could become intertwined in this issue that you know we just don't necessarily understand and probably never will because science and history has dictated we go in a different direction. You know, there isn't much um, thought given or or even allowed, you know, within academic circles for the idea of interpreting ancient folklore, mysteries, history as extraterrestrial. You know, they just don't, true or not, they just don't want to deal with it, you know. And and I know, and I know that as you explained... No, 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 we have to take a break. Hold on, we have to take take a break. break. Oh, we have to take a break. Okay, so we'll take a break. We're talking, and this... This 90 minutes is, go, is flying by, uh, which is amazing to me. Um, Nick is full of information. His book is great. Go buy the book. It's actually my publisher to Career Press. And uh, we are Bill and Nancy Burns on Future Theater Live on the Dark Matter Digital Network. And I want to talk PSA about time Radio. travel on the other side, okay? With our time guest, time. Nick Redfern. And we'll talk about time travel on the other side. So stay with us. We're back after these messages. Hi, this is Solaris Blue Raven with Hyperspace on Dark Matter Radio. Tune in on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for an intriguing show pertaining to covert technology, UFOs, paranormal, mysticism, and spirituality. Here's a riddle for you. What do the California gold rush of the 1850s, secret societies, coded messages, mysterious 19th century flying machines, and an early 20th century outside artist named Charles A.A. Delshaw all have in common? The Secrets of Delshaw by Dennis Crenshaw and Pete Navarro. Go to www.secretsofdelshaw.com to learn more. In a world run by thugs and imbeciles, 
by Robert Barons in three-piece suits, where a subservient media pipes sewage into the eyes and ears of the masses 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Where do you go for the truth? Is the president an alien, either Kenyan or Zeta? Did the fabulous sea monkeys ordered from comic book ads by kids in the 60s and 70s slither out of their tanks and into ears, and are they running the brains of the ruling elite today? Is David Icke right about the queen being a lizard, or is there a sea monkey brooding on his brain like a jockey atop a chunk of horse meat? Are Lemurians beneath Mount Shasta really addicted to porn and chewing tobacco, or are there spokesmen in the surface world deluded or deranged? For the answers to all of these questions and more, tune in each week for another revealing and informative episode of Unraveling the Secrets, and get that sea monkey off of your brain. And we are back with our guest, Nick Redfern, on Future Theater Live on the Dark Matter Digital Network and PSN Radio. And I, I, I want to throw in one quick question, and then I know Nancy has a bunch of questions, but the question I want to throw in real quick is, do you find it interesting? Now, I know you didn't cover this in the book, and I know Career Press, and I know Adam, and I know Michael, and I know them very well. I feel like Donald Trump. Um, that, <laughs> that you, that when... Talking about bloodline, when Mary fled after the crucifixion, where, according to the bloodline folks, according to um, Eisenman and according to the folks who wrote the Holy Blood, Holy Grail, where they fled, they fled to the very area of um, southern France that you're talking about. It was um, Rennes-la-Chateau, and, and that is where the whole story of the holy bloodline of Jesus Christ be, uh, began to spread. And where the, the I know, I know, I know this is, I know this is a digression, but, but, but in that very same area in Southern France, near the Pyrenees, that's where this author, Chrétien de Troyes lived at the court of Eleanor of Aquitaine. And this is where the whole story of the questing knights and King Arthur and Sir Gawain and Sir Galahad and Sir Percival all began right in that area that you're talking about, Nick. And that began the story of the Holy Grail as the chalice, as opposed to Sang Real, Holy Blood. Now, I know you couldn't cover that in the book, but... It was interesting. No, I mean, but uh, I mean, it's an important thread because, again, it, it's like you know that analogy of like the jigsaw pieces. We find another piece of the puzzle that fits in geographically speaking, but also with a bloodline. And I think the more we dig into it, the more we're going to see these, you know, these the sort of spin-offs and tie-ins that that link all this together. You know, I, I'll be the first to admit it's sort of a very much still underappreciated aspect of the UFO phenomenon because yeah, it's, yeah. in many respects it's more of a medical issue if you like um, well, also could you go back and is there any way to ascertain what the RH factor is in long dead people like uh, John D for example in other words is might knowledge oh. be passed through this bloodline you were talking about the uh, memory well, well, yeah, I mean, you would need to be able to, obviously, you know, you'd have to be able to access, um, at the very least, the DNA of the person, you know, but, um, you know, ideally... But might it be know, in records, when did they start typing blood? When oh, did they start... 
Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, you can go back so far, but I mean, you're going to be limited by the fact... I mean, for example, if you look back at the American Civil War, I mm. mean, literally thousands of men died in the American Civil War, which, you know, which is, isn't that long ago, because back, even as late as the American Civil War, um, the issue of, you know, being Group A or Group B, etc., etc., that was not known and, and understood. And so, mm -hmm. you know, soldiers got musket shots or, you know, hit by a sword or whatever and, you know, lost a limb. And they just, the doctors, you know, there's emergencies on the battlefield, they just pump blood into them. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. It was like Russian roulette, but nobody knew why. So mm -hmm. in other words, it's actually not very far in our history that you can go back to actually ascertain Mm -hmm. you know, somebody's blood group, because as I said, even that, as late as the Civil War, I mean, you know, that was an unknown factor then. It's a relatively, you know, right. actually the 20th, and, the 20th century when all this was, was resolved. Right. And back it was in the, the early day... It was the early 20th century. In fact, one of the early hematologists was Matt Jacobson, Dr. Feelgood, who's among the early yeah. people to begin typing blood and trying to understand the mechanism of how blood worked as a rejuvenating factor in human disease. Yeah, it's barely been like a century, you know, when all this really kicked off right. and was started to be understood. So, uh, I mean, theoretically, uh, you could look at, um, if you could find the remains of John D and be able to sequence his DNA, sequence his well, genome. I was, actually, I was actually thinking if I were going to do the research, uh, you look into the situation where back in the, back in the day they would have humors. Remember humors right, instead the four of humors. the four humors. And so there might be a correlation in blood types. You were starting to say, Nick, that there are cer certain physical characteristics. For example, might redheaded people be oftentimes... Uh, RH negative because oftentimes well they have no people, souls Nancy they have no souls exactly they're they're let's say it's a joke soulless but a, bastards yes see what I'm saying so you know redheaded people might be um, there you know in other words we as a race might already know things that we can't put into words but we know you know we isolate certain kinds of people. I don't know, maybe. Well, I'm just... Yeah. Well, I mean, I talk... This is an interesting thing I talk about in the book about, you know, the when you talk about isolating people. Um, you know, if it was... I mean, granted, it's hypothetical, but if it was proved that, you know, the RH negatives are different and it's due to some sort of extraterrestrial intervention, you know, would that provoke hysteria or fear on the re part of the rest of the population? One of the things I point out in the book was, as an analogy was a parallel was that, you know, everybody remembers um, when we had the outbreak of Ebola in the U.S., mm -hmm. literally just, you know, a couple of miles from where I live, just outside Dallas, Texas. And, you know, and then the second, you know, the guy who originally brought it into the country died, then the nurse got it, then another one. And there were these calls, you know, it was like something at like The Walking Dead. It was like, you know, let's, <laughs> let's close the city down, keep the infected away from everybody else. <laughs> wow. And, of course... You know, and he, and he just rolled over, you know, the guy died, yes, but the nurses got better and everybody forgot about it and life went on. So, you know, but there was this mass hysteria that Dallas should be put under quarantine and, you know, martial law should be introduced. That was actually all being addressed on the Internet. So mm -hmm. I talk about that in the book as a parallel. If the RH negatives were found to be different, would would a certain percentage, you know, of hysterical individuals 
make demands about them in the same way in the 80s. You know, people were saying that um, people affected by AIDS and HIV had to be kept away from society. You know, it was sort of like the hysterical, loony side of the population. And um, I think that could happen with the RH negatives. Now, of course, it's not like people who are RH negative are all in on some big alien secret and they're, you know, working for the aliens. Most people don't even give, you know, if they don't know they're RH negative, you know, they they wouldn't know. But even if they do know, it's not like, you know, they're programmed or anything like that. They're not. They're, it's just their makeup is different. Yeah, but, but it, that, it adds to the it adds to the equation. If you find yourself drawn to this topic, as you know, it is not that lucrative a field. And if you're a professional writer or a filmmaker, whatever, it's not necessarily the best way to make a living. Particularly the the, the pure UFO field that Nick and I know lots about. Um, so you're drawn to it for other reasons, is what? Well, yeah. So I mean, I, I, yeah, I think most people who write about the subject and research it do so because they're fascinated by it. And you may have people who fully endorse the stories. Other people are skeptics people and other people are somewhere in between. But I think we're all drawn to it and write about it because well, we write about it and research it and lecture on it because we're drawn to it. You know, mm -hmm. it's not like somebody says, oh, I'm going to make a career writing books about, I don't know, ghosts or haunted houses when they have no interest in the subject. You know, that would be ridiculous. Um, you know, I think we write about it because even if we don't know why, we're still drawn to it. You know, we might yeah, disagree but if you have with each a, other. But if you have a, a marker in your blood that you mm. share with this tiny group of yeah. people, and as you, yeah, that's a fascinating little bit. And I'm, you know, I, Angel and I both are, will, in fact, pursue it. I can guarantee. Oh yeah, going to get blood tested. Well, get yeah. your blood test. I mean, that, yeah, yeah. but I mean, uh, uh, do you want to live in a society? in which everybody has to get a blood test, everybody has to get blood typed so that the society knows who's RH negative, who's RH positive, and they develop, they develop um, uh, but what if aptitudes. They already, but, but what if they already know? What if, let's just say, their collection systems are a little more sophisticated than ours, and I've given blood, I've done, you know, blood has been taken from me. It's in a, it's in a database someplace, right? They know. Actually, actually no. Actually, that's not true. The, um, under uh, the Affordable Care Act, just now, and I know this because I go to doctors, uh, just now you're seeing electronic health records come into being. And uh, I can tell you it is so you're screwed such a naive, up. naive, naive It's citizen. not naive. I, I'm sitting in a doctor's Guys. office where their, their Guys, eyes yeah. are crossing because you these programs don't work. We have yeah. a caller, guys. Uh, 719, you're live on Future Theater with Nick Redfern. Hello, Nick, Bill, and Nancy. Nancy, you know who Hi, I Kevin. am. Ah, uh, how are you? And, this is Kevin. Um, I wasn't going to say my name because what I'm getting ready to say pertains uh -oh. to what you all have been talking about. You got my finger on ahead. My mother has always told me I was the ninth child to survive this RH negative, RH positive mother's blood fighting against the baby's disease. Wow. And to wow. top it off, supposedly it was even more rare than what you all are talking about. Now, assuming she's wrong, and this is what she's talking about, and the limited research I've done, it seems to be what she's, what you all are talking about tonight, the RH negative. 
Bill, what, or I'm sorry, Nick, what are the um, specific changes you see in Rh-negative people? Well, uh, the physical ones, um, um, people talk mm. about them having um, less resilience against the sun. They, they don't fare well in, um, in, in hot, extreme temperatures. Um, they typically have slightly sure. low blood pressure than normal, which is actually Check. a good thing. Um, <laughs> and mm -hmm. also the, the issue of an extra uh, vertebra, and sometimes there are rib Not anomalies sure. as well. Um, and sometimes there are what anomalies? Rib, in the ribs, in the rib oh, cage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That yeah. would be... Um, I have a... I have spina bifida occulta, which is a fancy way of saying that the skin was closed upon birth instead of it being open like normal spina bifida. But our whole Ouch. family, I know back at least two generations, uh, we had problems with our back, and specifically mm. in that lower back area. Mm. So, yeah, you've got me curious because as I've told Nancy once before, I have had some sort of encounter way back when I was a child as well. So a little bit of merit to what you're saying here, Nick. And mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I thought I'd share that. If either one of you are interested in any kind of uh, talking to me about this, I'd be interested in finding out all I can about it because any of the research I've done has ended in a dead end. Mm -hmm. The hospital I was born in will not give me the records, period. Hmm. So, what, that state, that... what state is this? Uh, southern state. I won't go to that and go into the state. But under, yeah. the Affordable, under the Affordable Care Act, you can now sue for your medical records. Oh, really? Yeah, we're talking, we're talking pre-1960 hmm. when I was born. So... Yeah, the last time I told called them on this, they told me all oh, of the records are stored in the warehouse. The hospital has been rebuilt on a new location, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm thinking, and I even did see myself written up in a journal when I was a kid. I'm thinking there's got to be a record someplace. But of course there is. Of course there is. Anybody associated with my birth is long, except for my mother, is long since dead. And I really can't get a whole lot of information, you know, mm -hmm. other than what I've been given. So, I don't know. But if you want to look me up mm -hmm. on Facebook and if you wanted to chat more, I'll, I'll be happy to do that. Well, I'm, I'm blind, so um, uh, Facebook would be a, problem. a challenge, but. That would be a problem, yes. Yeah, yeah well. That's a whole other storyline, the difficulties of accessible software. But um, Facebook should come out with maybe, a Braille edition for the blind. Well, I'm thinking maybe, Bill, I might bounce a few ideas off you about how to get a hold of these records because there's... I'll tell you who can help you out. I'll tell you who can help you out. Probably Lou Sheehan. Lou, if you're listening, try and contact. And no, 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 wait. Here's, help here's the thing. Out. Here's the thing. Yeah. Wait, hang on for a second. Kevin, I will I will put you in touch with Bill. You guys can talk on the telephone because um, Bill doesn't know that you're the fellow who wants to talk about his various eyedrop stuff. 
and some of the fun. Right, I, you know, I, know, I, know, I know who I'm talking to here. I know okay. it's Kevin. And, yeah, and, so there um, you go. So you have but a, the guy who can a... help you out, Kevin, I think the, uh, the attorney who can help you out is probably Lou Sheehan. Yeah, and I'm, uh, he's, uh, he's been in contact with me, so yeah, Good. I've got Lou's Perhaps. email. We're all but, just stumbling yeah, Lewis, along. If you're, in, yeah. if, if you're listening, yeah, uh, that's yeah. something I would love to research. That's a good idea. Lou, yeah, help this guy out. Help we out give Kevin. Every, everybody gives Lou more and more jobs. That's what we're doing. And I know. The, yeah, let's pile it on for Lou. <laughs> hey, by the way, we are right up against it, so we've got to oh. do a hard out, right? It is... Yeah, we're we gonna are. exit in a couple minutes. But before we go, I, I promised this to somebody who's listening in tonight. A uh, good friend, uh, his name is Danny. I want to give him a shout out. He's listening for the first time tonight. Uh, he's the master of gumball machines in South Florida. Shout out to Danny. What? Gumball machines. There you go. Really? Yeah. The I'm master of gumball machines? You mean like you... I, I didn't know there were still I'll, gumballs. This I'll tell you more later. Oh, yeah. This well. is bad. That's a crazy no, shout-out. That's a crazy shout-out. Yeah. Uh, I was going to do it at the beginning of the show, but I forgot, and I was like, you know what? I, I, used, to get si- I used to get sick on gumballs because I'd stuff my jaws. I had these two pouches full of gumballs, and I would simply get sick. Anyway, um, I want to thank Nick. Nick, tell us about your websites. How can folks get a hold of it's you? It's all linked up, guys. On the, on, it, you can uh, go on futuretheater.com, and you can find um, Nick's blog. That's the big now, thing. We do got to exit out, though. Uh, we keep talking oh, we about do. Nick. And so I love Nick, Nick, but writing we machine. Stay yes. tuned with Nick. Stay tuned, everybody, uh, for the Joe Midnight Rogan in the Desert. Joe Rogan. Oh, yeah, my favorite guy. guy. He's the guest tonight. David Sarita's on the show, too? Yeah. God help us. Okay, so <laughs> stay tuned. Stay tuned for Midnight in the Desert with Art Bell, David Salida, Joe Rogan, and we will be back next week. I'm trying to put together a show on PTSD with John Liebert, Mark Eisenhower, and other guests. And James. Telling this ter- and James telling the terrible story of Josh Eisenhower. So we're back next week. Have a wonderful week. Thank you, Nick. Keep on writing. I know there's another book in your machine right now. Keep on writing. And everybody from the banks of Primrose Creek in beautiful downtown Solbury Village, Pennsylvania, we are your co-hosts, Bill, that's me, and Nancy. Good night, everybody. Saying good night. See you next week on Future Theater Live. 